Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to talk first today about the search and seizure of highly classified documents from former President Donald Trump's home in Florida. Is this necessary government action against a rogue former official, or is it just about politics? Then we're going to discuss the great cleave, the ways in which America is so culturally and socially and politically divided, and whether that means we're headed for a more cataclysmic split, something like a civil war. It's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Day and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. If you're like me, you watched last week with absolute astonishment as the FBI raided former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago home, saying that they were looking for documents and perhaps concerned that he had violated a number of federal laws, including the Espionage Act. Now, we still don't know exactly what the FBI agents found, but we know the FBI searched Trump's home because he had taken some things that he was not supposed to. While leaving office, he apparently took 15 boxes of documents that were supposed to be under the supervision of the National Archives and Records Administration. More notably, he took a number of documents that were marked classified, which had raised the concern of the FBI. Now, because this story is still ongoing, there are just a lot of things that we don't know. We don't know whether Trump has actually broken any laws, in fact, even though in the warrant, uh, the Department of Justice talks about several possible laws that might be in play here. We also don't know what would happen to him if he did indeed break those laws. We're in somewhat of uncharted territory here, given that he is the former chief executive of our nation. And as noted, we don't even really know what the FBI found when it raided its this uh, house. We have no idea what was in these boxes or what these documents are. But we do know that this is a very serious set of circumstances. We know it hasn't happened before. There is no former president who has seen his house raided by federal agents looking for anything. Even Richard Nixon, after he resigned the presidency, didn't face that kind of scrutiny. We also know that there have been concerns for a long time about Donald Trump's relationships with foreign entities, and that some of the things that are alleged to be among the documents here would be things of interest to some of those foreign entities. And again, we really don't know what Merrick Garland, who is the Attorney General of the United States, has in mind here. Was this just an effort to retrieve documents that the Department of Justice didn't want to have out there? Or was this an effort to gather evidence in support of an indictment of the former president? It's a little bit of a confusing time, and of course, the airwaves, both television and radio, are full of really robust opinions about what's happening and what should happen. We want to have a little more of a sober conversation here about the context, the politics, and of course the legal issues that surround this search. What's really going on here? What's possible out of all of this? And what should ordinary Americans really be concerned about? We've got two great guests with us to help unpack all of this. Nicholas Wu is a congressional reporter 
at Politico, and he has been following the FBI investigation at Mar-a-Lago. Nicholas, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having me, Stephen. Also here with us is Mark Chutko. He is the leader of the Dykema Law Firm's Government Investigations and Corporate Compliance Team, and he is a former assistant U.S. attorney here in Southeast Michigan. Mark, welcome to Detroit Today. Morning, Stephen. Happy to be here. So, Nicholas, uh, I want to go back to last week and talk about exactly what happened and what the justification we have been given so far is for this unprecedented raid on a former president's home. Yeah, so what we're looking at so far, Stephen, is evidence that the Justice Department was investigating former President Trump um, for potential obstruction of justice and uh, um, violations of the Espionage Act uh, relating to basically how this classified information um, was was handled at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, what we got um, what was what was formally unsealed last Friday was the uh, warrant for the search of the president's home and um, the receipt of items that the FBI took from uh, former President Trump's house. And so we um, were able to get a glimpse at you know what 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 exactly they were uh, what exactly they found, including you know, boxes of um, of documents. Uh, there were documents labeled top secret inside, uh, and and. and there were there were other items that we still don't know a whole lot about, including one that, at least according to the FBI, was just labeled info regarding the president of France. Um, the, the the embassy of France declined to comment on this, but uh, basically all, all this is shaping up to show that you know that this was a, a much more uh, mature investigation than uh, you know we had thought uh, previously. That that you know we're finally starting to see the DOJ go public. Um, with what they're looking at here. Now, there's still a whole lot we don't know, right? That obviously a search uh, for all this is not, you know, proof of guilt uh, for any potential crimes, and and we're a long way, uh, or we're, we're a ways away rather from, you know, any any informal uh, charging decision here. But uh, you know, at, at the very least, it's it's a very dramatic turn in this investigation, and something that had previously been more under the radar. And and talk about the presidential context here. Um, as some of President, former President Trump's defenders have said, presidents do take lots of documents with them when they leave office. Uh, they look, uh, the way in which that happens, I guess, looks really different than it has in this case. But what is it about the way in which Donald Trump took these documents and the interaction he had with DOJ over the past uh, few years about those documents made this look really different. Well, it, it was kind of no surprise that uh, uh, that there were issues with how the former president would have handled documents, right? Like the the, the retention of documents during the Trump administration uh, it has been a perennial issue, right? Like you know, it's been reported in the past about um, uh, Trump's habit of tearing up important documents. Um, uh, you know, tweeting out things that were previously classified and the like. But of course, you know, the, the president has, as, as president, has unilateral power to uh, declassify documents. And so, uh, you know, Trump, Trump could simply say that, you know, he, he wanted to declassify um, information when he was president. However, in post-presidential life, this, this is something a little different, right? Normally, there is a whole process for um, preserving and retaining presidential records once someone leaves office. That's what the National Archives is for. And that's mm-hmm. you know, kind of how we got to this point, right? We, we know that, um, I think it was actually in February, that the National Archives revealed that there were issues about classified information being stored at Mar-a-Lago. And there were issues about, um, actually, even before all this, there were 15 boxes of information uh, of presidential records that were recovered from Mar-a-Lago and taken back to the archives. And so... Uh, uh, what's new here is really the Justice Department's involvement in this, as you know, moving this from from beyond the realm of a uh, a presidential records national archives issue and, and, and into something that becomes more of a, uh, a legal Justice Department problem. Yeah. So, Mark Chutko, I want to bring you into the conversation here as a former AUSA. Uh, let's start with this. Uh, is it your belief that you would have to have something really potentially 
um, important and significant to have to uh, be able to, to, to go to a judge and say, I need a search warrant for the former president's home. Uh, I, I guess I'm trying to get some sense of the, the, the scale of, uh, I guess, how, how big a deal this is, that, that they were able to get this warrant, that they executed it, um, and the conversations, I guess, that would have taken place in the run-up to that about the sensitivities uh, that that surround something like this. Yeah, I think you've got it right. It has to do with the status of the person being investigated. Um, Search warrants are being executed every day all around the country, and that's based on a uh, simple principle that uh, if a neutral and detached judge, uh, in this case a magistrate judge, finds that there's probable cause that a crime has been committed and that evidence or fruit of the crime is going to be found in a location, uh, the judge is required to issue a, a warrant. And, and they happen each and every day. Uh, what makes this different, obviously, is that it's the president, former president of the United States, which makes this uh, completely unprecedented. And um, it, it, what's interesting is to try to figure out whether uh, the warrant is primarily for the purpose of advancing a criminal investigation or whether it's simply an effort to um, assist the National Archives in getting its documents back. It, it may be um, a little bit of both. Um, warrants can be executed for seizure of contraband, um, for seizure of money, uh, for purposes of forfeiture. And so in this case, the government is looking at these classified records likely as contraband, as, as um, documents that should not be in private hands and that need to be back in the National Archives. And so they're looking for a method to get it back. Um, I'm assuming that there's been an escalating series of approaches here before we got to this point. Um, you know, as uh, Nicholas indicated, the National Archives uh, early this year had requested these documents back sometime in January. Um, when that didn't work, uh, a federal grand jury issued a subpoena um, commanding that the documents be returned to the grand jury itself. Um, that apparently uh, resulted in a series of negotiations in June in Mar-a-Lago where DOJ officials went down there and talked with the former president's uh, lawyer. And I, apparently he even had stopped by at one point. And so he, I'm guessing that uh, Attorney General Garland, after a series of conversations with um, other members of, of, his, um, of his office, decided that uh, none of these other steps had worked and that they were going to have to take this aggressive and quite unprecedented um, move, which was to execute a search warrant. Yeah. So I, I also want to talk about the potential criminal implications here. Uh, as we learned from the unsealing of the warrant, uh, there were a couple of statutes that, that uh, the DOJ cited uh, as potentially implicated here. One was obst- uh, about obstruction of, of justice. The other is about the Espionage Act. Uh, talk about how serious either of those, I guess, is, and especially the, the, the rarity, I guess, of, of uh, implicating espionage, for instance, with the, the, the name of a former of a former president. Yeah, that that term certainly has a pejorative context to it. Um, You know, the Espionage Act is quite complicated, and there's many different ways to violate it. Um, It appears here that what the Justice Department is focusing on is the uh, unauthorized retention or disclosure of information related to the national defense that uh, could, if um, it got into the wrong hands, be used to harm the United States. Um, This is a statute that has frequently been used um, in connection with leaks uh, to the news media of classified and other sort of national security information. Um, And so it's it's a serious offense. It's got a maximum term of 10 years imprisonment. Uh, The the other statute is one that I used quite a bit, uh, Section 1519, impeding or uh, obstructing a federal investigation. This one was created uh, by the Sarbanes-Oxley Act um, in the wake of the Enron and uh, Arthur Anderson scandals. Mm-hmm. And um, in this one, um, it is alleged that um, um, either the president or members of the staff or others may have um, attempt- attempted uh, to impede or obstruct um, an investigation. So that may be related to uh, the combination of uh, the, the federal grand jury subpoena, uh, the request, 
by the National Archives for the records, the uh, meeting of the Department of Justice officials down in Mar-a-Lago. Um, I'm told that uh, the department <clears throat> has asked specifically for video taped evidence um, of the hallway in and around where the storage area was, where many of these records were kept. Um, that would, in my estimation, be an attempt to see if there is corroboration for the idea that there was obstruction. So, for instance, in June, um, were a number of aides and staff members scurrying around, going in and out of that storage room, uh, taking boxes in and out, um, either before or after that meeting, that would uh, show an intent to obstruct. Um, and the last charge is one that I've never encountered before. It's, it seems fairly esoteric. It's, uh, it talks about the willful and unlawful removal or destruction of government records. And that has to do the three-year offense. I, I think what is interesting about it is the, um, is the potential collateral consequence um, that it would prohibit a, a, a defendant who was convicted of it of holding future federal office. And um, if that one was the uh, the charge that ultimately stuck, stuck here, I could imagine that there could be some constitutional challenges on that. The, the one thing that I, I think is interesting is what hasn't been charged here, and that specifically is uh, Section 1924 of Title 18 of the United States Code. That's the unauthorized removal and retention of classified documents. That would be the standard charge that you would bring if you thought that uh, classified information had been unlawfully taken or possessed. Uh, that was the charge, I believe, that Hillary Clinton was being investigated about uh, during the uh, uptick to the 2016 uh, campaign and election. And uh, former uh, CIA director and, um, and uh, general uh, David Petraeus was also uh, uh, charged or considered being charged with that act. And I think eventually pled guilty to a misdemeanor of unauthorized removal and retention of classified information. And so uh, the fact that that charge is not amongst the three that um, have been identified in the warrant suggests to me that uh, perhaps the department is trying to play it safe um, mm. because they're concerned that perhaps the president, um, it's unclear when it comes to a president what they can and cannot declassify. And to remove that as a potential impediment from a criminal prosecution, um, they may have uh, decided instead to uh, uh, list these other statutes that don't require as an element uh, classified information being retained. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm talking right now with Nicholas Wu, who's a congressional reporter at Politico, who's covered former President Trump's impeachment trials, is following the FBI's investigation of Mar-a-Lago. Also with us, who you were just listening to, is Mark Chutko. He is a leader of the Dykema Law Firm's Government Investigations and Corporate Compliance Team, also a former assistant U.S. attorney here in Southeast Michigan. Uh, we're talking about this raid last week on Mar-a-Lago, the home of former President Donald Trump, uh, the retrieval of 15 boxes of documents that were supposedly supposed to be under the supervision of the National Archives. What was Donald Trump doing with those uh, boxes and documents? And was his possession of those documents uh, a crime? Was he potentially breaking the law? Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation, of course, as well. Give us a call and tell us what you make of this unprecedented search of a former president's home. You think the FBI should have done that? You think maybe this was uh, overreach or unwarranted in some way? Do you think it's more about politics than it is about the law? Um, also, give us a sense of what you think of the DOJ's investigation. Now very clear that there is an investigation uh, into the former president and his behavior, uh, both in the White House and after. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can work you into the conversation. Let's go first to Bernadette in Old Redford. Uh, Bernadette, what's on your mind? I think, uh, yeah, okay, Bernadette, call us back. Uh, we'll get you back on. Uh, let's go next to Frank in Livonia. Frank, what's on your mind? Hey, good morning, Stephen. Um, you know, the thing that I'm concerned about is the uh, uh, the treatment of the FBI agents when uh, Trump, uh, you know, let their names be known. I mean, we're seeing more and more of this. Uh, you know, it's January a sixth, a sixth attack on, uh, you know, the police. And, uh, you know, you see it at 
you know, poll workers. I've worked on the polls and, and the intimidation by people. And I just think that it's going to be really difficult to get people in law enforcement uh, to keep doing this job if, if they're uh, attacked like this. And, and I guess that's, you know, a, a big step towards a fascist state. Uh, and, I, and I see that coming. Uh, hmm. it's, it's very discouraging to see that coming out of that. If we don't, you know, it's one thing to have laws, but if you don't have law enforcement that's independent and, uh, you know, respected by the politicians, we have nothing. Yeah. Uh, Frank, really appreciate the call uh, and those those thoughts. Um, Nicholas Wu, this would have been something that Merrick Garland would have had to spend uh, an awful lot of time thinking about, I, I imagine, which is not just the, the legal implications of this, but the cultural and social implications and the timing. Uh, we're just a few months from the midterm elections. We are certainly just a few months from candidates for the 2024 presidential contest starting to, to raise their hands and say that they're, they're interested to talk about the way that these things uh, all have some effect on the decision-making at the DOJ. It, the Attorney General has made it uh, clear that you know this, this was something that he actually signed off on. Uh, he said last Friday, right, that uh, you know he had been the one to approve the decision to seek a search warrant um, in the first place. And I think for the Department of Justice, uh, uh, having been burned so badly before, um, it, it, when... Uh, you know, in, in the course of the investigation to Hillary Clinton's emails, for example, and 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 the uh, you know the, the the political headwinds they faced during the Trump years, right? This is not a decision that they would have to take lightly, and and it, it speaks to uh, what what probably is the body of evidence that the Department of Justice has gathered, not only in this investigation but into its other parallel investigation into the efforts by Trump and his allies to subvert the 2020 election. I mean, the 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 search of Mar-a-Lago, right, was just part of, um, of the, this whole uh, uh, constellation of investigations that, that DOJ is pursuing. They've been issuing grand jury subpoenas for some time uh, for documents and testimony related to the, uh, you know, the the subversion of the 2020 election. Um, you know, we saw agents search the home of Jeffrey Clark, right, the the the, the former uh, DOJ official who Trump and his allies tried to elevate to the top of DOJ to um, an effort to uh, you know investigate election results. Right, a day after the Mar-a-Lago search, um, you know, as part of another parallel investigation by the DOJ, we saw uh, FBI agents seize the phone of Congressman Scott Perry a Republican from Pennsylvania who had been wrapped up in a lot of these uh, uh, election challenge efforts. And, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it appears that this is all still, uh, there, there's a lot more to come. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to continue this conversation about the raid on Mar-a-Lago, former President Trump's home in Florida. We'll also continue to hear from you guys on the phones and on social. Brad and Shelby Township. Jerry in Detroit, Dan in Southfield, we'll get to you next if you want to join them. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Steve Henderson, your host, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Right now, we're talking about the raid on Donald Trump's home in Mar a Lago, Florida, last week by uh, FBI agents approved by Attorney General Merrick Garland. Uh, they were looking for documents that uh, Donald Trump took with him uh, when he left the White House and went to Florida, documents that uh, the DOJ says he had not cooperated in returning. Uh, we're talking also about the, the political and legal context for all of this, the things that uh, DOJ may be thinking about, may be looking into with regard to the former president. We want to hear from you what you think about this kind of raid on a former president's home. Uh, what do you think about the documents that he had? What might he have been doing with them? And uh, was this all 
warranted or unwarranted in your mind? Was this something that uh, is about the law or is maybe about politics? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and uh, we'll work you into the conversation that way. Let's go to Brad in Shelby Township. Brad, welcome to the show. Hi. Um, I don't know. I just have my opinion. But this is just a continuation of January 6th trial. I mean, anything to, you know, badmouth a political opponent. Biden says he doesn't know anything. Oh, please, come on. He probably started, you know, his his team is doing all this for him. It's just to divert attention from his inability to lead. So, Brad, if if Donald Trump, as it turns out, had classified nuclear documents that he wasn't supposed to have, which there are some reports that suggest that that's the case. You don't think, you don't think that the Department of Justice is justified in, in doing that, in, in retrieving those documents from him? Uh, no, no, not. I don't think they will. I mean, you said that, you know, some reports, yeah, well, I wonder who putting out some of them reports. And I, you know, I, it's politics. That's all it is. It's it's politics. I also remember reading about Bill Clinton. One member of his team stole some stuff, and he got fined like $50,000 or something like that. You'd have to look it up. Brad, I I really appreciate the call and the perspective. Thanks very much for, you know, being a listener here. Um, Mark Chutko, uh, there's a lot of this kind of talk about the DOJ and uh, its role as a legal uh, enforcer, but also its political context. And and as Brad says, he does, doesn't believe that politics don't play a role in all of this. Uh, you were an assistant USA U.S. attorney here in in Southeast Michigan. Tell us tell us how that all gets sorted out. Well, it was uh, it's a bit easier when you're in Detroit um, as a uh, working at a field U.S. attorney's office. <laughs> right. You're not in the middle of the beltway and some of the political considerations. But uh, I, I, I think it is important to know here that uh, the president, Biden, um, expressed surprise when he heard about the, uh, the search of Mar-a-Lago. Um, none of his staff had been advised of this at all. And they learned about it from the news media. Um, so I, I think that is reestablishing to some extent the norms that we expect, um, that there is going to be um, a bit of a disconnect between the Department of Justice and the White House when it comes to matters of law enforcement. Normally, there's supposed to be a, a specific line where only two people um, liaise uh, with each other when it comes to uh prosecutions that involve political considerations. But um, I do think that the point Brad raises is an important one. Um, Obviously, a lot of the country is looking at the Department of Justice um, and some of its actions through uh, a partisan lens. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, The Democrats were doing that, uh, too, when James Comey, the director of the FBI, announced um, uh, both the uh, investigation and uh, Hillary Clinton's server and then uh, the discontinuation of that. And so um, th- that is something that I, I think that the the FBI and the department are working hard to be quieter and not to be so uh, out front and in the news um, because it does create collateral consequences for them. We, we saw um, uh, a person attacked the Cincinnati field office of the FBI, um, eventually uh, died in a shootout uh, just recently um, allegedly in connection with the Mar-a-Lago search. Uh, The magistrate judge, um, who just happened to be on duty that day, or actually was replacing somebody who was supposed to be on duty to sign this search warrant, is now under threat, and uh, the marshals are providing him protection. Um, The, the, uh, I guess the consideration and the concern of the politicization of the department has a spillover effect in other court cases out there. Um, as you know, Stephen, we currently on the Western District of Michigan have a uh, a case right now um, involving an alleged kidnapping plot of Governor Whitmer over mass mandates and other sorts of things. And uh, jurors in the jury selection process there expressed skepticism about law enforcement. Maybe be reading the news right now and wondering to themselves, you know, is this are these the same FBI agents that executed on the warrant on the Mar-a-Lago? Um, and that could cause them some suspicion 
um, of the case that is currently in the Western District. And so I do think it's important for the uh, the department to try to take a step back, stay away from politics. Um, and that's why the department does have certain norms, like not bringing uh, cases, especially criminal cases, um, with a political content um, to them within 60 or 90 days of an election. Um, I should say that um, this is slightly different in that if this was 60 or 90 days from a presidential election, I think that these considerations would be more important. Because, it, would be, um, it would be a really different context, no question. Right, you know? yeah. right. Yeah, this is a congressional election. Uh, uh, President, Former President Trump is not up for re-election right now. So um, I think that that attenuates it a little bit from uh, a political consideration. But, yeah. you know, w- one thing I, I was going to say is that, you know, some – have suggested that there there might be a pretext here that this is not in fact a uh, a search for national security related documents or or um, classified documents but in fact is an attempt to bootstrap off of that in order to collect documents related to January 6th which um which Brad had mentioned and um you know uh, that January 6th is not mentioned as one of the uh, uh potential violations that is uh in the warrant itself Um, If the agents were duly authorized to be in a location and if they saw in plain view documents that related to January 6th, they they could collect them. Um, But, uh, you know, we don't have any evidence that there's a a pretextual basis for why they're doing the searches here. It seems like uh, they, they, especially by the documents that have been uh, included on the property receipt, it does appear that they were collecting records that were related to uh, classified or national security documents. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Brad, appreciate the call and the comments. Let's go back to Bernadette in Old Redford. She's back with us. Bernadette, what's on your mind? Hi, Stephen. I want to know, how were those removed from the White House? Because you know, if I go to the library and it's in their valuable collection, they won't let me leave. They didn't have to. <laughs> you can't just walk out the door with it. <laughs> yeah, did they just have a U-Haul and drive them down to Mar-a-Lago? <laughs> um, the other thing that I'm curious about is why didn't Trump destroy those documents rather mm. than to hang on to them? So we're not just talking about the last 15 boxes, but the ones that they got before this most recent a trip yeah. down to retrieve the documents. Yeah, Bernadette, those are both great questions. I really appreciate the call. Uh, Nicholas Wu, this uh, this is something that most Americans don't probably have a terrible amount of knowledge about, which is after you're done being president of the United States, there are lots and lots of documents that, that go with you uh, under the care of the National Archives. But But talk a little about that process and how these 15 boxes ended up in the former president's house, I guess, uh, in, in, instead of uh, under that kind of official care? Yeah, Bernadette, that's a really good question. Since, you know, was, when was the last time we saw this much focus on uh, um, presidential records, right? Normally, right. <laughs> uh, under, you know, slightly different circumstances, it's, it's, there, there is a somewhat established procedure for what happens um, to presidential records after uh, the executive leaves office, right? They, there's, there's, um, they, they work with the National Archives, eventually a presidential library is set up, and that's all handled. Um, the thing is, most of that information generally, is, it doesn't have to do with anything classified, right? Like, think about the bulk of the material that you see in a presidential library, right? They're, 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 they're interesting inner workings of the executive's office, but um, they're not necessarily issues pertaining to national security, or at the very least, if they do pertain to national security, uh, you know, the, the, the former president um, is supposed to follow, um, uh, you know, the appropriate laws for uh, disposing of or, or, or giving back um, that material. In this case, however, there's some reporting to suggest that at the end of the Trump presidency, remember, the you know, inauguration uh, day was January 20th. Uh, 2021, just a couple weeks after January 6th, and you had this incredibly chaotic period in the final few weeks of the Trump presidency. And so um, there's some reporting to suggest that you know, it was an incredibly chaotic pack-up at the end of the Trump White House. And so um, that's how you start to have some of this material you know, taken down with the former president to Mar-a-Lago uh, and, and kept there rather than you know, given back to the National Archives um, for, for the uh, proper storage. Um, it, we still don't know exactly what 
the basis for all this material is, right? We have these uh, somewhat loose descriptions um, from the FBI's receipt. We have some reporting suggesting you know, that, that, that there could be uh, uh, nuclear secrets within these materials. And there's still a whole lot we don't know, and, and, and it'll take some time to figure this out. Perhaps, uh, when, you know, when the affidavit underlying all of this uh, uh, comes to light. But um, we'll have to wait and see when that happens. Yeah. Okay. Mark, Mark Chucko and Nicholas Wu, it was really great to have uh, both of you here to shine a little light on what is going on at the DOJ and at Mar-a-Lago. Thanks to both of you for, for being with us. Thank you so much. Yeah, very happy to be here. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we are going to discuss how close America is to breaking apart. Think of all the tension that is being unleashed and fueled by things like the raid on Mar-a-Lago last week. Are we getting closer to something cataclysmic, like a split of America or a civil war? Barbara Walter, who's a professor at the University of California, San Diego, and an expert on civil wars and violent extremism, will join us next to talk about it. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. It's no secret that we don't really like each other much in this nation right now. That's at least what we see in the headlines and what we feel, I think, in spaces like social media. But the differences for sure seem to be running much deeper these days. We don't listen to each other because we don't interact, and we don't interact because we're really different. We live in different places. We think about different things, talk about different things. Uh, Liberals are more likely to live in cities, to be agnostic or atheist and have non-white friends. Conservatives are pretty much the opposite. Uh, They are more Christian, more rural, less likely to have friends that don't resemble them. It really does feel sometimes as though we're living in two countries. So how real is that? We know these divisions and factions have caused real problems in our politics and in our culture, but how far does the division really go? We know that countries can break apart. They can cease to exist as one. And that almost happened in this nation, of course, uh, many years ago during the Civil War. But could something like that happen again? And if it were to, how would we know? it was going to happen? What are the warning signs? What was the meaning, for instance, of the January 6th insurrection last year? Or how about the storming of Michigan's Capitol and the attempted kidnapping of Governor Gretchen Whitmer? Are these signs that we are closer to a split as Americans and maybe a war over that split? Barbara Walter is someone who has thought a lot about these questions. She's a professor at the University of California, San Diego, and has studied civil wars in many other countries around the world. She recently turned her attention to the United States, as she believes our country is increasingly likely to be headed in that direction. Professor Walter has written all about this in her new book, How Civil Wars Start. Professor Walter, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So your book starts with the plot to kidnap our governor here in the state of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer. So yes. let's talk about how you, why you start a book about your, our political divisions with our own state here uh, and not maybe with the January 6th uh, insurrection. Uh, well, I start the book with that because it, it's very indicative of the very, very early stages of insurgency. Um, the CIA actually has a manual called the Guide to Insurgency, which they put together in order to try to predict or or try to anticipate what countries are likely descending into that type of violence. And there's three stages. There's the pre-insurgency stage, the incipient insurgency stage, and the full insurgency stage. 
And, and the incipient insurgency stage is when you have these isolated acts of violence. And the, the, what's dangerous about that stage is usually the citizens who are experiencing this violence or the government, they don't put, they don't connect the dots. They see these as isolated incidents. Um, they see these as the result of, of an, a crazy individual or a small group of, of individuals who, who are really not a threat and certainly not part of a larger movement. And so they tend to be either downplayed or ignored. And, and I think that's what we've been seeing in this country. And the Michigan plot against the governor, um, in my opinion, is, is, is one of those events. And so I, I get all of that, and I can't argue with any of it, to be, to, to be honest. Uh, I think these signs are very disturbing, and they are also very clear. But I guess there's a part of me that says times are so different than they were in the 1850s <laughs> or 1840s in the run-up to, the, to the, the Civil War that we did have. And there are so many things that would argue against not a a, a split um, of of the nation, which I think we are really kind of living in now. I mean, if you live in New York or California or Connecticut, you're not living really in the same country in many ways as somebody who lives in Mississippi or or Oklahoma. Um, exactly, but this idea yeah. that this idea that it would come to a conflict, right? The yeah. idea that there might be a shooting war about all of this. I don't know. Somehow I, I, I don't, I don't fully believe that would happen in large part because I think we're more okay with the idea that, that we're in different spaces at this point. And I don't know that either side wants to force the other side to, to live the way that they do so much as they just don't want to live the way <clears throat> that the other side is living. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, in some ways, you're absolutely correct. I think one of the reasons why it's hard for many Americans to even think that a second civil war is possible is because they're, they're thinking of the 1860s version of a civil war. Um, they're thinking about two large armies meeting each other on a battlefield in uniforms with a large segment of, of the country unified against the Union, wanting to secede. Um, and that was, an, that was a 19th century type of civil war. Um, the types of civil wars that tend to happen today, the 21st century civil wars are very different and they're especially different when they're fought against a powerful country with a very powerful military. If you look back into the, at 1860, the US military was not very strong sure. and the Confederacy was actually quite strong. Um, the Confederate States had hundreds of small militias that already existed long before in the decades before the Civil War. And they were created in order to put down slave uprisings. So when the South decided it was going to secede, all it had to do was take these militias, bring them together, and they had a standing army. At the same time, the federal government had about 16,000 soldiers. That's it. And those 16,000 soldiers were, for the most part, stationed out West to put down Indian uprisings. So if you're the South and you want to secede and you want to go to war against the federal government in 1860s, it was not a crazy idea. It would be a completely crazy idea to try to do that today when we have almost over 2 million soldiers under arms. And, and so um, what happens in the 21st century is um, groups that are angry at a, at, at a government, groups that want to um, pursue their own policies and, and kind of be free of what they see as often government overreach, um, they pursue insurgencies. They form militias or they form paramilitary groups. They're very decentralized. They tend to operate in the shadows. They don't want to engage soldiers in the military. And instead, they pursue unconventional tactics like guerrilla warfare and terrorism, and they tend to target civilians. Mm. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, average citizens, in, in this case, it would be, for example, you, you see the targeting of synagogues, you see the targeting of black churches, um, you see the targeting of opposition leaders or, or, or judges or doctors who are performing abortions. That's the 21st century type of civil war that we would see here in the United States if it were to occur. And how would that change 
the way that we're living right now, for instance. I mean, <laughs> as you point out in the book, we're seeing people do things that are quite extraordinary in, in the yeah. context of U.S. history, at least. Um, and they are threatening civilians and, in some cases, you know, <clears throat> uh, government officials. Uh, what would change? Or what, how do we know things were changing to the, to the state of an actual yeah. cleave, violent cleave of, of the nation? Yeah. So I think it would change, initially it would change the most at the state level. And you're already, <clears throat> excuse me, you're already starting to see this happen where state legislatures are <clears throat> increasingly pursuing um, policies, so especially social policies that are much more conservative than the median voter in those states. Um, and so what, what you're, what, the, what you're seeing is the more extreme elements of a party um, are are being really savvy. They're playing a very long game of trying to capture state legislatures and then pushing through their their policies that way. Um, and um, how do I want to put this? Um, and and so they're getting at the state level what they can't get at the federal level. The even more extreme elements, if, if you want to be a little bit dystopic about this, um, if you think about the far right here in this country, about 65% of far right groups are, are white supremacist groups, about 29% are anti-federal government groups. The white supremacists believe that the United States is a white Christian nation, um, and, and they believe that it's their right to, to fight to keep the United States a white Christian nation. That's gonna be very difficult to do at the national level, but in some states like Michigan, they might be able to accomplish it. Um, and because Michigan, for example, is a state where you have this large urban rural divide, where essentially the, the, the rural places in Michigan are, majority, are, are heavily white, the urban areas are heavily non-white. Um, if you're a white supremacist in Michigan and you believe that government should be run by whites and Christians, and you can somehow convince um, African-Americans, Muslims, um, uh, you know, other non-white people who live in places like Detroit or Grand Rapids um, or Flint to leave the state, then essentially you can create the white ethno-national state that you always wanted. Hmm. And if you do that, does that mean yeah. that we are not one country anymore? Does that mean... That essentially we're living in maybe multiple countries uh, all at the same time. Um, that's a really great question. It it means that we're becoming less united, right? And again, that's the we're the United States of America. Um, it means it is getting to the the core identity of this mm -hmm. country. Um, and, and in fact, that's what the battle is about. White supremacists and, and extremists on the far right um, are in a battle for what they see is the future identity of this country. Is it going to be um, you know, a heterogeneous, multi-ethnic, multi-religious, um, global-oriented country? Or is it going to remain what they believe are its true roots, um, which is white and Christian and conservative? Um, and they would like to create this in as many parts of the country as they can. And so if, if that's happening, while at the same time on the, on the coast and, and um, in other heavily populated states, the left is, is becoming increasingly um, liberal, increasingly global, increasingly educated, um, you, you have two very different Americas. Hmm. So I guess the other question is, what do you do to reverse this? Uh, it, it does <laughs> seem that that everything that happens right now uh, seems to pour gas on on the fire yeah. of this this divide. Uh, and and in some cases, it's just things operating the way that they are supposed to, right? Uh, you know, a, a, a former president keeps boxes of former documents. The DOJ says we're going to go get them. Uh, that doesn't seem on its face terribly <laughs> controversial, but in the context of everything else, it does become really controversial and people get angrier. So uh, what, what, yeah. what are we supposed to be doing to push this in another direction? <laughs> um, you, well, there's really 
Three, three things. The first is strengthen our democracy. Um, the federal government has been declining in strength relative to the individual states for decades now. Um, and that has almost accelerated. So we, we now have a majority on the Supreme Court who believes more strongly in states' rights than in, in some respects in, in the power of the federal government. Mm. And if, if individual states are allowed to make um, their own policies and the federal government can't override these policies, even if it deems those policies, even if they, those policies are are unconstitutional, um, then this division is going to continue, and this and and this you know these two separate Americas are are are, are going to you know come into being. Um, and then the second thing we can do is again, it's our parties are are heavily divided along race. The Republican mm -hmm. Party is predominantly white and Christian, and the the Democratic Party is is pretty much everyone else, um, including sort of the liberal wing of the white white population. Um, and, and that's a problem. You know, if, if again, America is multi-ethnic, multi-religious, we need our two main parties to be reaching across um, religious and racial lines. Um, and so that would, that would turn the ship around. And then, um, you know, people ask me all the time, what's the, the single easiest thing that we can do to, to reduce the risk of, of violence moving forward? And my answer is always the same. It's regulate social media. Hmm. Um, all of these things have been accelerating since the mid 2000s. Um, the decline of democracy, not just here in the United States, but in liberal democracies around the world, the rise of ethnic nationalism, the rise of, of, of far-right nationalist parties, the rise of hate crimes, the rise of militias. This is all running in lockstep with, with the rise of social media and more importantly, with the changes that social media companies have made to their recommend, recommendation engines. Right. The yeah. algorithms that, that Facebook and YouTube um, and all of these popular sites use um, are designed to keep people at, at engaged on their phones as long as possible. And they understand yeah. um, I, you know, through I'm sorry, experiments Barbara. that they've done. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm out of time, but this is such a great conversation and such a wonderful book. I'm really glad that you were able to join us today. Thank you so yeah. much. Yeah, well, thank you very much. That's going to do it for us today. We'll be back tomorrow. Hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation.